Welcome to My Gnarliest Moment, the podcast that delves deep into the world of extreme sports and exploration, sharing hair-raising stories from professional athletes and adventurists from all over the globe and how they overcame their greatest challenges. This week, we're sharing the stories of RAB-sponsored British rock climber, runner, and entrepreneur, Tom Randall. Tom has had an incredibly varied and awe-inspiring career to date. Among his myriad accomplishments, he is the founder of climbing coaching and training plan company, Lattice Training, one half of prolific climbing partnership, Wide Boys, a pioneer of many trad and crack climbing first ascents in the UK and beyond, and holds the speed record of the Brown and Willans 24-hour challenge climbing all the routes on the eastern and western edges of the Peak District National Park. Today, we cover what he claims to be his gnarliest moment to date, the lessons he learned from that, and how it feeds into his climbing goals, coaching, and motivation into the next several decades as an elite athlete. Let's get into it. So Tom, amongst many things, you're a rock climber by trade, but you're also the founder and coach for Lattice Training. You have made first ascents in places ranging from Utah to Devon. I recently saw you climb under a motorway for Real Rock um, and set uh, multiple records for the Bob Graham round. So you've done a multitude of things in your time, but I'd love to hear in your own words, what is your background? How did you get into rock climbing and how did you get into outdoor pursuits? Because then we can understand more of your journey to your gnarliest moment. I suppose my my whole journey into climbing and the outdoors started through school, really. And the school that I was at had a few outdoor pursuits courses or activity holidays through my teenage years that were possible to go on and I got the unluckiest run of being invited there was never enough spaces on them basically and for probably four years in a row I never got onto any of these holidays trips expeditions with the school so I got to the age of maybe 16 17 years old or so and I was absolutely desperate to go into the outdoors but I really actually hadn't had that much kind of proper exposure to adventure and right at that critical time, I then got exposed to rock climbing through a really good friend at school. And that just ended up being the open door. So I'd wanted to do it through a formulaic way of going through groups and expeditions and things with the school. But then I ended up just doing it with almost solo style with a friend and us going off and exploring climbing together. And we just ended up teaching ourselves, going off and having these wild, if not extremely risky adventures in the first couple of years, diving into climbing. And I think within even the first six months of it, I knew that I was probably going to be a climber for life. And from there, it just ended up being do it for, you know, fun and then do it kind of kind of seriously for fun and juggle it alongside a normal job until eventually I got to probably mid, mid twenties, late twenties. And I got to the point where I could go semi-professional with climbing. And that's where I took the, the big leap of, right, I'm going to try and make this thing my career. But it's not so much that you took a sport and made it into your career. You've done a whole range of different things. And it's sort of, I would perceive what you do is very innovative um, and very multi-layered. Obviously, now you've branched out into training um, and into coaching. Um, but there must be a little bit more to it than just thinking, oh, well, I want to be outdoors. You know, you've obviously set yourself challenges that no one else has set for you. You know, you placed a lot of internal pressures on yourself. So where does that come from and why do you do it? Um, oh, that's a good question. So I would say fundamentally, I'm more of a, of like a, as a character and how my personality works up as I'm, 
I really, really enjoy problem solving. I really enjoy challenging the status quo of where things sit. So all the way through to kind of nowadays in my my kind of you know early 40s is I really enjoy both the blend of high performance sport, but also the kind of entrepreneurial nature of business startups and trying to work out how the complexity all fits together and the problem solving and challenging these things that we think exist and how they work because that works both in sport but it also works within business and the early years that I had I think I probably did both of those in parallel across a few different sports so I was into martial arts and uh, athletics before climbing and I was always really think trying to think about the out of the box of how would you train in a different way how would you try and break a record by going down a really sort of a deep niche within that sport and how would you solve a problem in a way that no one had ever seen before I remember looking at parts of industry around me and thinking well that's just a ridiculous idea why do people do this you know, this type of work or industry in this way, can I solve it? Can I do it in a different way or seeing a product or a service that I liked? And I was doing that all the way from teenage years. And that really is probably the reason why I've ended up doing both business startups, but also pushing really hard in sport because I like the problem solving element. And I really like pushing the status quo and not thinking that it's set and what it is. I love that risk. And I love the what you learn about yourself and what you learn about the environment around you. Well, I'm glad you mentioned risk um, because that leads me to my next question and the bulk of what we're going to talk about today, which is it's very well known that even if you're not a professional athlete, if you're an athlete that pursues any kind of extreme sport, it does come with its fair share of risks, of challenges, of intrinsic danger. So let's get into it. What would you say is the most gnarliest moment that you've had in your career to date? And tell me the story behind it. Well, first off, I'm going to say that as a professional athlete who in, works within what I suppose you class as risk sports, I want to note that I find even saying what my gnarliest moment is really, what's the word? It's almost jarring for me to do it as, as an athlete because I don't in any way value or look for moments that are gnarly. And this might sound a little... Uh, paradoxical to people who will be listening thinking oh but Tom must love extreme stuff all the time I don't I don't like being terrified I don't like nearly dying I like being in a zone where I learn lots I like being finding true mastery in things I like finding flow experiences so when you you know had this podcast idea and kind of like approached me about it thinking I was going oh uh gnarliest moment huh uh I don't know, what do I actually want to talk about here? Uh, and it's almost embarrassing talking about the gnarly moment because it was the one, it's ones where you nearly die and things go, go wrong. Um, but anyway, cutting to the point, I, I had to think through a number of different episodes and I guess the one that I feel like I learned the most about myself and how I tackle life and I think is a useful thing for others to maybe think about and how it might affect them and their risk profile, risk-taking in life was when I was trying to do this link up of lots of very long distance trail running in the Lake District, where I was doing around 30, I think it's about 35 miles of running between all of these Lake District peaks. And 
each time I would get to a peak in the Lake District, I would then complete a, a free solo climb where you're climbing a route of maybe sometimes short, quite short ones, 50 meters long, other times a little longer, 100, 150, sometimes maybe up to 200 meters long, I guess, if you get right from the start. And you would take no rope. You would just take your running shoes, a small bag, rope and uh, sort of food and water, and you would link between all of these peaks, free soloing in between all of them as well. And on one particular route, which was one of the more, I suppose, easier ones, but technically it was very insecure. And halfway up the route, I just had a moment where I slightly lost concentration. I was on ever so slightly damp hold. And I had what you do, you call a barn door move in climbing, where you your body sort of swings out almost like a door on a hinge. And I lost contact point with one foot and one hand. And kind of swung right to the end of the balance point and I was on pretty poor holds at that point so it was really a case of I couldn't strength it out and hold myself on it was more like stay calm be in the moment know where you feel intuitively with your body it didn't quite go further enough maybe another 10 centimeters of rotation and I would have been off and that would have been me done but in this case I just got to the limit of that kind of swing my foot went back on, my hand went back on and I continued. And it was in the moment, one of those points where you don't directly go, oh my goodness, that's totally awful. I've nearly died. That wasn't good at all. It then starts to wash over you maybe an hour later, a day later, multiple days later. And I sort of through my medical training, I'm very familiar with seeing people in shock after something incredibly traumatic has happened. And it almost takes a while, as you say, for things to sink in. So what happened in the aftermath, sort of the few days to weeks afterwards? Did you feel that it was incredibly demotivating? Did it did it sort of hit you at a much later point and stay with you? Or what did you do to sort of overcome, again, the sort of psychological aspects of what happened to you? I think what I needed to do initially was in the moment, because I was trying to break this record and this time that I was going after I needed to fully stay in the moment and that was utterly critical so I had to force myself to switch back into it and then complete that that challenge that that speed record um but afterwards because I had follow-up things that I wanted to do and do more running and more soloing in the Lake District I had to revisit how I felt about the risk profile of what I was doing and what I realized is when I thought about it I'd already had two very close calls with doing this particular challenge and speed record up in the Lake District. And both of them, I'd been prepared to go totally to my limit and not really imposed a particular degree of self-control over, I will go to the point where I will fail, which I've done a lot of times in my life because I'm not so scared of failure. But in this one, failure is dying. So I had to kind of reset my my framework of thought process around a bit. Oh, Tom, you really don't want to die here. This thing here is not quite controllable. And they're just ever so slightly out, out of line with each other. So what I really ended up having to do was detach from my emotional attachment to the goal of what I wanted to continue doing over the next months. And then also have the conversations in a really productive way with anyone that had expectations over further think record attempts that I do so sponsors filmmakers etc and make sure that I kept it in a really 
healthy and productive zone so that I didn't then go into, I feel depressed, I feel shortchanged, I'm not good enough, I can't do this, whatever it might, like self-limiting beliefs. I think that's a really interesting point you've touched on upon as well, because do you feel that um, potentially for you personally in your history prior to sort of this incident, do you feel that there's a lot of gatekeeping in these sorts of challenges? And again, that can be quite isolating, as you've touched upon, if you're working towards a goal, but perhaps you don't want to share necessarily what you're doing with other people, the fear that, I don't know, someone else might beat you to it or that people might try and talk you out of it. And you need to maintain that sort of mindset that's very focused on your goal. But then that, as, you, as you've touched upon, can lead to a certain degree of isolation, which in turn snowballs into depression, into, into other things. Um, so was that something that you've had to overcome as well? Or have you ever struggled with that in the past where there has been that temptation to just keep things to yourself? Um, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily struggled with that aspect because I think for the most part, I've always maintained a really healthy balance of how I kind of deal with internal versus external expectations and my real motivation for why I'm in the outdoors and my real motivations for why I push myself hard and take risk. And and I've always been very, very intentional about that because it was important for me to get mass, maximum satisfaction out of climbing and this career. I've only got one life as far as I'm aware of it. And I'm just super into making every moment count and it be a good thing, not just a for someone else or living up to someone's expectations or my parents or the communities or satisfying my own self-driven ego for my own gain. Like it just doesn't interest me enough. So by being really intentional about it for a couple of decades now, I think it's always kept that in a really good zone. So I am able to walk away from things. I Likewise, I'm very unbothered in general about what happens on social media. I'm not bothered particularly about feedback or accolades that people give me when I do things because it just doesn't factor into it. I'm motivated by what I'm motivated by. And I'll keep doing that whether you're watching, someone else is watching or whatever. I love what you've sort of shared about your reticence to discuss your gnarliest moment. And thank you for doing it. Um, but also how jarring you find these situations to be. And I suppose an enormous part of it for me in these conversations is actually understanding the lessons that were learned from these experiences. So I wonder on that note, do you regret what had happened or did you find it, whether that be physically, psychologically or otherwise, to be valuable to your progression as a climber, as a person? Yeah, good question. I would say to some degrees, I do feel a degree of regret slash disappointment that I didn't manage myself that well. It's always been really important to manage all those elements that go into the outdoors and risk taking and the way that you impact others and whether it's your friends family climbing community however it might be and i think in that instance what i i did was i didn't apply a strong enough filter to over the drive to achieve and learn from that experience rather than going actually objectively here the risk is getting way too high for the benefits that may come out of this. And I just, I just got it wrong in, in that instance. And, and I, I had the warning signs beforehand because I'd already had a close incident probably a week, two weeks before that. And I still didn't pull back enough on that. But that's what sometimes you, you learn about yourself. And maybe on reflection now, I 
it was during the period of the lockdown years. I had like a, a lot of stress going on outside of sport as well. I think I probably wasn't thinking the clearest. I was quite tired a lot of the time doing too much. And that's just that itself is a learning point that you're probably not going to make the best judgment calls in life when you are utterly at your physical and mental limit. How is anyone supposed to operate well in that zone? Yeah, absolutely. And sort of, again, tying into that, I'm actually very interested in what your thoughts are around the longevity of your career. Um, I'm I'm sure you're very familiar with the quote, I certainly am, um, that there are bold climbers and that there are old climbers, but there are no old, bold climbers. So I wonder how have you so far maintained sort of your motivation, your passion, your innovation into your 40s, but where do you see yourself going and what do you see yourself accomplishing in the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years and beyond? Oh, another good question. Oh, you've got loads of good questions here. <laughs> Um, it's funny i haven't even been asked some of these questions before really oh wow okay well i i'm quite glad i'm asking them yeah um so regarding risk and boldness and things that i would say the defining thought process behind it is that i i'm not really i don't put a focus or i don't think about the boldness element or the danger element on the forefront at all. It's almost like it's a secondary thing that may come through my choices and motivations of what I'm into. So an example that might be is that this year, um, I'm really motivated to do a project where I, I don't know, I really want to, they, they've just built an amazing looking building in Manchester. It's this huge 25 story high building and there's a crack right up the side of it. And I find it really motivating. It's really pure aesthetic. I've done this stuff under bridge roof cracks. But then this is, wow, like someone actually finally built something that looked like this. So what I'll do is I'll invest all of my energy into thinking about the logistics of how that works, how motivated am I in it for that experience? Who would I do from do it with? What am I going to get out of it? And then right at the last minute, once I've built the kind of experience and the tactics and how everything goes together, I'll say, Okay, so what does the risk profile of this look like? How does that balance from what I learn, what other people might get from this, what the outputs are from that that project as such? And then I'll start to think about how the balance looks. And if it's uncomfortable, then I'll try and change the risk profile on it. So I suppose the answer is I don't consider risk at the forefront and I have no expectations of how that will change over time. Like I thought that risk was going to change when I had kids. And loads of people told me it'd be very different when you become a dad. It didn't change at all. Not in the slightest because I don't, it just, it, the two are independent of each other for me. It's not how my brain works. And I was never going to be the person that was the bold climber through their twenties. And then they go, oh, this kind of sucks. It's hard, always going into a really dangerous zone. And I could really do with an excuse here. And it'd be really nice to kind of have something that's socially acceptable to say, oh, well, I've got kids now. No, I can't do the bold stuff. I always did the bold stuff and I still continue the bold stuff because I enjoy it so much and I get enough that it balances that I think it's worth it. And in this particular case, having children didn't change that for me. And that's where it sits. 
I think that's such an interesting point as well. And I've, I've read so many accounts of, I think it was Alex Honnold who said before he actually did have a child that he was allergic to having children um, because of the concerns about the effect it would have on his risk profile and his appetite for risk. And I think he also saw that from what Tommy Caldwell had written in, in his book, where he said, I think he ends one of his chapters with, you know, what's changed now is I absolutely, absolutely cannot die. Um, and so that's really interesting to hear sort of the the opposing view almost from you in that, you know, it hasn't actually changed that and they're two separate um, entities almost. So I, I think I think that's a really interesting perspective to have. Um, has that, have you had any pushback from that? Have people questioned that or or not at all? Yeah, yeah, very definitely have. And um, I think it's it's quite hard for some people to hear sometimes me saying that. Strangely, it's very easy for me to say it because my reasoning and rationale is just completely true to how I function as an individual. I never, ever do any of this bold stuff for anyone else. I never do it unless I'm utterly comfortable for how that risk profile looks. It's exactly the same. It's just a sliding scale on the spectrum of where you take things in life and you go, well, what type of car will you drive and what kind of safety features will you be happy with in that car? What type of holiday will you choose? I mean, we could all go on holidays just down to the local high street and hopefully not pass too many road crossings and do something super safe. But also there's hundreds of thousands of us that go off and do some kind of somewhat adventure sport, mountain biking, go trail running, go canoeing on your holiday. Like we all t take this sliding scale of choices, but we have these cultural thresholds and boundaries that people are comfortable with. And they look at where they go, I am okay with this, or it's not acceptable. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I hope there's a really good reason why I will get to 80 years old and I'm still alive and I haven't died because I've really thought about this and really thought about my reasons. Absolutely. <laughs> and what I'm really interested in having sort of discussed that point in particular is how do those lessons and what you've learned and extrapolating that mindset, how does that feed into what you practice and preach as a coach to others? Um, I think the, the principal thing that I try and get across to others when it comes to coaching or, and, and whether that's coaching other climbers or um, mentoring other people, um, whether it's in climbing or elsewhere, is that uh, half of the, I don't want to call it like the secret of life, but one of the the interesting ingredients that goes into life is being able to get yourself into a position where you're okay with taking on things which are going to make you feel uncomfortable and you have a degree of uncertainty, but finding this balance where if the uncom uncomfortableness or the uncertainty kind of goes a little wrong, you can deal with the setback in a productive way. So you can go, ooh, I didn't like today. It wasn't cool. Wasn't easy for me. But you know what? I'm going to get up tomorrow and it's going to be okay. And maybe I will come back to it in a week's time. And maybe I'll come back to it in a month's time. So you promote this cycle of just a little outside of your comfort zone, but I can go back and have a little test from that again. And I learned something rather than isolated instances of, whoa, holy smokes, that was just way full on. I'm feeling quite traumatized by it and never want to touch that again. That was an awful experience and you're in a really negative place. And that to me is more of a, a spin down the slope where you eventually become more and more risk averse. You're not open to new ideas. You never want to take on anything new and you don't learn and you don't grow, develop as a human. 
And so I like trying to get people into that zone where they're always just pushing outside. So from a training perspective, it's pushing your body to be just a little uncomfortable or a skill set is pushing into just a little bit of a different variation on a skill set that you have rather than going right now you can do this thing, but I want you to immediately master this brand new thing within a week next week. It's never that. It's tiny little baby steps over the threshold. And I think that's really productive. And for you personally, any other dream climbing or running goals? Um, oh, any dream running goals or climbing goals? I was, yeah, I was just saying to my girlfriend yesterday, actually, that I would love to complete the UTMB one day around Mont Blanc. That'd be pretty cool. Have you signed up for it? No, I, I was kind of on the threshold of doing something with it or a, a, a sort of one of the shorter variations when I was doing a lot of running a couple of years ago. But then I've taken some time out from running again now. Um, so it would be something that I would probably come back to in the future. And then climbing, uh, I, I just like combining travel and seeing new places, new cultures, new people, but combining it with climbing. So new places in the world, that'd be amazing. And perhaps a just slightly more introspective question tied into that, which is if you could actually remove all elements of risk and danger from what you are pursuing outdoors, would that make it more or less enjoyable for you? I think potentially it could be exactly the same as long as I could still work on the ele- the other elements of what I get from the outdoors and pushing myself within sport. So let's take the example of learning new new things about your environment or about yourself if you took all the units of energy that you put into thinking about risk and dealing with risk but now you intentionally say i'm going to go after more of a learning experience within what i do and you're really intentional about it i think i could get just as much out of climbing but i couldn't just passively take risk out and then go oh it's exactly the same i don't think it would be i'd have to be proactive about working on that i think And lastly, aside from the wealth of information and advice that you've already shared here, is there any other advice that you would give to other athletes, outdoor enthusiasts, I appreciate that exists across the spectrum, who are bouncing back from a setback um, and are looking to regroup? What would you say to them? Probably say to anyone who's suffering from setbacks and things that haven't gone very well, whether it's relatively small ones maybe they're amalgamated altogether or something really quite big is that one, I think it's entirely possible to turn almost any situation in life round to an advantage or an opportunity if you get good enough at reframing things. And I'd say that the whole reframing exercise is not an innate part of your personality or character. It's a skill set itself that you have to develop and it's going to take 10, 20, 30 years to get really good at that. So I think that's one thing is if you can start to understand that, that's a really productive place to be. And I've seen myself do it. I've watched loads of other people do that and get really good at it. And then secondly is understanding that time is one of the greatest tools. It's one of the most expensive tools that we have in life, but that one solves and facilitates so many things like this because ultimately we're looking for change and that often requires some kind of time thank you so much for listening to this episode of my gnarliest moment and if you like what you've heard and want others to find us too we would love it if you can rate review share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts 
Tune in next time for another incredible guest story exploring the world's most challenging environments.